Hello and welcome to another show, everybody. Today we are privileged to be joined by the marketing titan, podcaster, pro speaker, and best-selling author, Jay Bear. Welcome, Jay. Brad, thanks so much for having me. I think titan kind of feels like a fat guy joke, but uh, but I'm going to let it go. <laughs> That's totally not what I meant. Um, but Jay, I can't, you know, I can't imagine uh, there's any people out there who haven't heard of you, but can you tee us up with just a minute or so of, um, of who you are, your background, and, and what you do? Sure. Sure. I have been in online marketing since the very beginning, since 1994. I've had a series of professional services uh, companies during that two and a half decades. My current firm is called Convince and Convert. I've got a small team of uh, highly experienced strategists that work with some of the world's most interesting brands on uh, social media content marketing and customer service issues. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, as you mentioned, uh, travel around the world uh, talking about these kind of issues. Uh, and I'm the author of five books. Our company also has a media division, which publishes six different podcasts per week, about 12 blog posts per week, four email newsletters per week, and a bunch of other stuff. Wow. So what do you do in your spare time, Jay? I don't really work that hard. See, that, this is the secret. I've got a really amazing team that does all the work, and I just take victory laps on podcasts like this one. <laughs> that sounds like a really good uh, way to spend your time. So from obviously you mentioned um, marketing, but you have a big focus on customer service, right? Yep. So, yeah. so tell, tell me why you, um, you focus so much on customer service. Well, I... I I was in the customer service business for a brief time as a young lad and had some experience with the public. In fact, I tell a couple of those stories in my new book, Hug Your Haters, about a time where I was working as the returns clerk at a retail operation and a gentleman brought back some underwear to return and it, it was not new in package. It had been worn and not worn just once. It had been worn several times, uh, <laughs> ostensibly by him, although I have no proof of that. And he wanted to, to, to return the underwear, and I thought, well, surely that's not going to happen. So I had to go talk to my manager, uh, and my manager's name was Mr. Big. That was actually his name, Mr. Big, which is the best department store manager of all time name, that's, I think, really. That is fantastic, yeah. It's right out of a, it's right out of a show, right? So Mr. Big. Uh, and Mr. Big says, no, no, we're going to take it back. Uh, you know, our, our policy is we take all returns, no questions asked. And I didn't really understand that. I was 16 at the time, and I don't fully understand it now, but as – time went by, you know, 30 years passed. And, and what I discovered on the consulting side of our business is that increasingly customer service is marketing. Because more and more of the time, Brian, when when businesses interact with their customers, they are doing so in public. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago that that was really unlikely, right? Mm. So so the history of, of customer interaction is primarily in private, whether it's face-to-face, -face, like my underwear story, whether it's the telephone or, or even email. Now, of course, more and more customer interactions are playing out in public on Facebook, on Twitter, et cetera, blogs, discussion boards, review websites, et cetera. Uh, and that changes the balance of power and also the stakes of of customer interactions. And so what we found in the consulting business is that people on the marketing side were asking us questions about customer service and people on the customer service side were asking us about marketing. I thought, well, geez, <laughs> if these big companies that we work with don't have it figured out, a bunch of people don't have this figured out. So uh, I wrote a book about customer service disruption and how it applies to modern marketing. Yeah, it's a massive crossover. And I guess um, how you deal with a complaint or even just a simple innocent question in the public space, um, you mentioned the stakes are high. Does that mean that there's an even bigger opportunity to, um, to add value to your brand now if you, if you handled it right? 
Oh, of course. In fact, not 30 seconds ago, uh, right before we went on air, I got um, an email from a friend who saw me speak last week, and she came across something online, again, in a public space. And you may have seen this. Uh, It was an exchange between Tesco, um, the British um, uh, retailer, and one of their customers. The customer found a worm uh, inside a Tesco cucumber packaging, and they went into this like massively detailed back and forth. There was a worm funeral. Uh, the Tesco customer service <laughs> rep wrote a custom song uh, that reworded one of Oasis's famous tracks. I mean, this was like an extraordinarily detailed back and forth over a period of days. Uh, and and you, you think about sort of going the extra mile um, or the extra kilometer, you know, in in a way that is that is really un, unprecedented. And they don't have to do that. But again, this is all in public. So now uh, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people see this exchange on the Tesco Facebook page. Then it gets retweeted. Then it gets picked up in the popular press. Then somebody like me talks about it on a podcast. And and so this this sort of going way above and beyond what customers expect. And customer service is really about expectation management, right? So when you can do something that transcends what they expect, it actually makes word of mouth involuntary. And that's one of the things we've been exploring is that if you if you exceed expectations, your customers simply have to tell their friends. They say, you won't believe what happened to me when I complained about blank. <laughs> and that that is amazing. Right. That's when customer service really does become marketing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like we, we work with one of the Virgin brands and I'm a great admirer of uh, Innocent Drinks, if you know, you know those guys. Oh, yes. And, yeah, fantastic. You know, very playful brands. And you would expect it from, from those. But interesting you say that about Tesco. Do you think there's a perception that the brand needs to be playful in order to have that type of engagement? And, you know, or is that... Is that illusion yeah. starting to be? So really, shot? that's a very perceptive question. I, I I don't think it is a requirement. Mm-hmm. I think it is easier culturally inside the organization to allow team members to work without a script to say, look, if you see an opportunity to surprise, delight, to go the extra mile, to to sort of you know do something that a customer will truly appreciate, do it. I think it's more of a cultural alignment than anything else. Typically. Brands that have more of a casual tone and feel are also brands that give their employees more license to be themselves. And so I think that's where you see – I think it's it's not cause. I think it's effect. Yeah, absolutely. And that example with Tesco's that you've just given there, um, if you compared that to a preconceived um, TV advertising campaign uh, with a big budget, for example – um, how do you think? How do you think the engagement and the the sort of visibility of those two things compare? I mean, are we in a place now where a simple exchange uh, demonstrating that you care, you're listening, and and uh, you want to do something about it and talk to your audience is? Would you would you argue that that is more powerful because of the authenticity? The no, thinking? I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I, I wish I could say that, okay. but I don't think it's true. Uh, just from a, just as you mentioned, just from a pure math standpoint, uh-huh. I mean, the number of people you're going to reach with your television commercial or any sort of paid advertising is so far beyond the number of people who are going to be familiar, even with this story that's now um, kind of becoming viral. But here's the difference. 
the impact of the story mm-hmm. on each person who's aware of it is much greater than the impact of the commercial on each person who's aware of that. Yeah. Because the commercial tells you something that you're typically already aware of. <laughs> the commercial meets your expectations or aligns with your existing expectations of the brand. The story changes your expectations of the brand and and therefore it has more persuasive power at the individual unit level. And and so that's why that's why the best stories are the stories you don't see coming, right? It it it, it changes your your preconceived notion. It it shifts the narrative as opposed to confirming the existing narrative. Uh, and the problem with advertising is that in most cases, advertising confirms an existing narrative. Not always, and in fact, many of the most successful commercials in the world uh, in history are those that that changed an existing narrative. But uh, what's great about some of these customer service stories is that you're like, wow, as you said, you don't expect that from a brand like Tesco, which makes it all the more powerful. But from a pure reach standpoint, sadly, there's no comparison, which is why you cannot run a business saying, OK, our strategy is to when it makes sense to do some sort of surprise and delight, go the extra mile uh, effort as as Tesco did with the cucumber worm. That's why the real solution is to treat every customer well. And you may not have the viral impact of the worm story, but if you treat every customer well and you answer every question, if you do what I say in the book, which is to answer answer every customer in every channel every time, just doing that uh, will be enough to change people's uh, thinking about the brand because so few companies actually do answer all their customers. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really smart. And um, something you've said is um, – on average, a third of complaints go answered. Is that is that right? Yeah, a third go unanswered. And, and almost all of those complaints that go unanswered are somewhat paradoxically in public, right? <laughs> I mean, almost almost all of the phone calls get answered. Almost all of the emails get answered eventually. Uh, but the things that don't get answered, generally speaking, are Facebook, Twitter, etc. cetera, um, reviews, message board comments, and so forth. The things that everybody else can see uh, are the things that don't get answered. And it's mostly uh, because businesses are not really prepared for the customer service disruption that I document in the book. I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of businesses, Brian, are using a 1995 playbook to solve 2016 customer service issues. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, in, in most businesses, the name of the department is call center, yeah. <laughs> that tells you all you need to know about how they think about customer contact. Meanwhile, if you look at almost any business, there's a few exceptions, but almost any business, the number of phone calls is dropping steadily and the number of customer contacts via public channels, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, goes up steadily. And, and so it's a, it's a massive shift that people really, I, in my estimation, haven't talked about enough. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's dive straight in um, now, Jay. Um, your book, Hug Your Haters, um, it's done incredibly well. Um, it's probably well. I don't know. Did it exceed your expectations in terms? Did you expect it to do so so well? It's an interesting book because an interesting topic, different from things I've written about in the past mm. in marketing. Uh, because writing and selling a book about customer service is almost like selling cold medicine, like. <laughs> Like everybody knows that they probably could use some cold medicine, uh, but people aren't clamoring to buy cold medicine um, until they actually have a cold. Uh, Marketing, uh, everybody knows, like everybody knows that marketing is really hard and marketing is disrupted and marketing changes every day. And so if you're in marketing, your appetite for marketing advice and marketing books knows no end, right? I mean, that's, I mean, i.e. this podcast. Um, if you are if you are 
not in marketing, if you're in customer service, most customer service people think they're doing a pretty good job. Uh, and a lot of marketers don't quite understand that customer service is marketing yet. And so the book has sold really well, but it sells in a very different pattern compared to my previous books about marketing, which I found fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. But um, Hug Your Haters, it's a great title. Uh, it really, it does sort of um, provoke sort of curiosity. How, how did you come up with that, uh, with, with that, that title? How, how did you get the idea for the book? Well, <laughs> what's funny is that the original book was a totally different book. And so when I started this project, the book was going to be called Under an Hour. And the thesis was that speed is the number one most important criteria in modern customer service, okay. whether it's phone or email or social, that whomever is fastest is bestest, that that customers have a very short uh, window whereby you can respond to them and and they will feel like you have been responsive. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to write a book with that advice as its central tenet, I should perhaps make sure that that's true, mm-hmm. which doesn't stop most authors. But I thought, hey, I'm going, <laughs> to actually, I, I'm going to actually confirm this. And so I launched a massive research project with the guys at Edison Research, a terrific firm. And we really looked at the science of complaint and we interviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It was very comprehensive, very expensive. And we found that it's actually not true, um, that it's only kind of true, that speed is very important. I talk about it in the book. Speed is very important, but speed is not the most important. The most important is something quite similar, but also quite difficult. The most important thing is to answer everybody, is to not let those one-third of complaints go unanswered because, Brian, no response is a response. It's, <laughs> yeah. a response. it's a response that says, we don't care about you at all. Very true. And your dissatisfaction as a customer is not relevant to us. We are perfectly okay with kissing you goodbye uh, and ignoring you forever. And, and so what we found in the research is that being responsive at all is the first step. Being responsive quickly is actually the second step. And so based on the research, changed the title of the book from under an hour to hug your haters and rewrote the entire book. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. And um, just the sort of prospect of you know the, the image it paints hugging your hater, I guess if somebody complains, uh, people, people are still in that place where they are surprised to get that one-on-one communication. And it it's, it's just simply by getting in touch straight away and focusing on an individual level. Does that help just dissipate um, the, the tension? The, oh, um, it does. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. that, that can be quite powerful, right? Oh, it can be, especially when, it's, when businesses treat it with a dose of empathy and a dose of humanity. So the best, the best organizations at customer service, especially online, are those that do not address the problem as the company, but it's but it's Bob from the company or or what have you, where where it is a human being who happens to work for the company is addressing you, the dissatisfied customer, as a human being who happens to be a customer of the company. When it is a a personal one to one interaction that is playing out in public, playing out uh, in full view of spectators. Customer service is a spectator sport now, but but the actual tone of the exchange is is at the human level that not only diffuses tension because it's much much easier to be mad at an institution than it is to be mad at a person 
uh, not only does it does it diffuse tension, but lots of research shows that it actually yields better outcomes as well. Yeah, and I've also read that um, a customer that complains and has their complaint dealt with um, swiftly and with empathy can actually become a more loyal customer afterwards yes. for that event. Is that true? true. Is that, that true? Yeah. Yes. It's almost like the Stockholm syndrome, if you're familiar with that, right? Where where prisoners fall in love with their captives. Um, it is a similar kind of psychology where cu- customers who have a problem that is successfully resolved become more loyal to the brand than customers who have never had a problem at all. Wow. Which the Machiavellian side of me thinks, why don't we come up with a problem? Let's put that problem on every customer. We know we can solve it. Let's solve it. Uh, and we have created this massive loyalty event. Uh, I don't recommend that. I, I think that's a dangerous game to play. Uh, but it does make you think, right? Um, it, it, it makes you think about the planned the planned outage or what have you. Uh, but it is a really fascinating – I mean all there's lots of different inter- interlaced uh, psychology elements here. That's one, that, that customers who are successfully handled become more loyal. Mm-hmm. If a customer complains and that complaint is answered, not even fixed, okay? So let, let's 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 make a, an important delineation here. There is addressing the problem and there is solving the problem, okay? So if a customer complains and their complaint is addressed, not necessarily solved, it's just I hear you, that customer remains a customer 70% of the time. Wow. 70%, right? Uh, because our research found that actually addressing the issue is more important to customer satisfaction than solving the issue. Mm. That you get credit just for saying, I hear you, wow. and you don't necessarily have to solve them. Obviously, it's better if you solve the problem, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but you do not have to solve the problem. You just have to acknowledge their right to have a problem. Wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. From, from a storytelling point of view, Jay, if we take that scenario as, a, as an example, um, a lot of people say that um, word of mouth and marketing is one of the most powerful. So if we can create a story um, for our customers to tell on our, our behalf, I guess, I guess that's, that's a holy grail, right? Is, is there any advice... Yes around making it easier for your customers to tell stories about your business. Well, and those stories happen all the time, okay. every day. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? And th- those stories happen right now on Yelp, on TripAdvisor, on Amazon, on Google reviews. Any place that people on iTunes reviews for this very podcast, every time that somebody leaves you a review, they are telling a public story about your business. We just don't think about it that way. And it's a huge mistake because that's exactly what it is. It's a public story about your business. And so a couple of things about that. Number one, praise is the most overrated thing in business and probably the most overrated thing in life. Yes, every time somebody says you're fantastic and you're great and I love the business or I love the podcast or whatever, that makes you feel terrific, of course. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't actually help you get better. It it doesn't tell you anything because in almost every case, we already know what we're good at, right? That's not new information. So it doesn't really help you operationally to get positive stories told about you. Of course, it helps from a marketing standpoint. It doesn't necessarily help from an operations standpoint. What, What makes you a better 
person, a better business person, a better company is negative feedback and criticism. And so what you want is is more and more and more of your customers to to tell those stories, whether those stories are positive or negative. Uh, what what happens in practice is that businesses try to get more positive reviews and suppress negative reviews. But what would they they'd be better off saying, I want all the reviews, positive or negative, because if they're positive, great. And if they're negative, I've learned something that that I can actually use to make my business uh, better. Well, absolutely. But it strikes me that, um, well, two things there. You need to be quite brave to have that mindset. Um, yeah. And if, I guess a lot of people listening to this podcast, uh, they might be in a position where they wholeheartedly agree with you, Jay, but their boss or their organization hmm? are, are not brave enough. Any advice yeah. to sort of break down those barriers? Yeah, let me tell you a story about that. So there's a business called uh, La Pan Quotidienne, and they're a chain of bakeries and cafes. They've got about 220 locations. They're based in Brussels, lots of locations in the U.S. as well. And their director of customer relations is Erin Pepper. And Erin is very, very smart. She really understands how to play the long game with storytelling from customers and customer service. When she started at the brand two years ago, she said, my goal is to triple the number of complaints that we get. <laughs> wow. <laughs> To trip the number of complaints because she understands a very important statistic in business, which is that only 5% of unhappy customers ever complain to the business. They may say something to their friends, but only 5% of unhappy customers on average ever complain to the business. Wow. So that's a small percentage of overall dissatisfaction, which is why it's really dangerous when companies say, well, that person had an isolated experience. Well, it's unlikely that they did because each of those people probably represents 19 other customers who had the exact same problem who just didn't say anything about it. So these people who complain, who take their time to complain uh, or praise are, are, are your most important customers because they're using their time to do so. They don't need to do that, of course. So she said, look, I want to triple the number of complaints. Because I want more raw material of what we're doing less than perfect. And so what she did is she went through and audited all the different touch points in the business. So where are all the places that we intersect with customers? Email, of course, website, of course, social media, parking lot signage. What do uh, the cashiers say when somebody approaches the counter? What's the signage in the bathrooms? Do, are there table tents on the tables? What does the receipt say when you get your receipts from the cash register? All these different sort of touch points. And in each of those places, she created nudges to provide feedback. So there's signage everywhere now that says, we want to know what you think. And we want to know in any form or fashion you want. You want to text us. Here's the number. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Yelp, TripAdvisor. Send us an email. Like, call us. You know, skywriting, whatever you want to do, all the different ways that you can possibly communicate. It's the really, they push feedback on customers quite hard. And so what happened? She got triple the number of complaints and also five times more positive reviews. And then she used those complaints, did a really deep dive analysis, fixed a bunch of things that were wrong in the business, and then the complaints went down. See, what, what she understands is that you cannot get fewer complaints without first getting more complaints. And that's how you sell it into your boss. You say, look, we want feedback so that we can figure out what we can do better and then if we can do that, the feedback will improve in the second 
space. Wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, that's a brilliant way of looking at things before you can reduce complaints that they, they have to in- increase. Is that right? Only 5% of unhappy customers ever complain. Wow. That's incredible. Usually they just, usually they just disappear. They're like, nah, I'm not going back. Right. I mean, you think about it I mean, and you know, think about how many times you've been to a restaurant for the first time. You're like, yeah, it's all right. And you just, you know, or you know what? I didn't like the soup or the bathrooms were dirty and you didn't actually tell anybody about that. You're just like, meh. And you just, you just don't come back. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even if you're just satisfied, uh, that's kind of not enough, is it? I mean, and there's a huge people in, huge amount of people in the middle there. So people will yes. sing your praises at one end and absolutely destroy you at the other. Yes. Um, yeah. That's so, why you see in review sites in particular, you see a lot of ones and a lot of fives, right? You don't, you don't see a lot of threes because if you have a three star experience, you're like, well, I don't feel the need to write this down for anybody. I'm not, I'm neither, I'm neither alerting people that they should spend money here, nor am I warning people that they shouldn't spend money here. Uh, and so you typically see feedback, of course, at the polls, right? Super positive or super negative. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, I'm really fascinated by the the link between customer service and marketing. And of course, mm-hmm. two minutes into you talking about it, Jay, it's unbelievably obvious why why that is. Are you finding um, that in other aspects of business um, where the public meets the brand, that there's opportunities to or inconsistencies um, in terms of brand communications? Because we we work a lot in the recruitment space and. Mm-hmm. We've seen feedback from a candidate experience point of view that customers are being treated great at the front door, but at the back door when people apply for jobs, actually the experience isn't isn't so great. I mean, businesses seem to be exposed from a number of different angles now. Um, is is it uh, is it important now that we're starting to see businesses work together in terms of the the divisions are a little bit more joined up and there's more internal communications. How much of, yes. how much it needs to be internalized and, and changed in, internally? Does, any, well, any right now, there? right, yeah, I think it's, it's very perceptive. Right now, there's a lot of departmental level storytelling mm-hmm. where, where marketing has a narrative and sales has a narrative and customer service has a narrative and HR recruitment has a narrative and those narratives were spun up at the division or department level. Mm-hmm. And, and that's better than no story, which is where we've come from. <laughs> uh, but, but it is a story that is true only to the inhabitants of that division or department. Yeah. And then when you get somebody who crosses over those divisions or departments, uh, or can observe it at, at, you know, a 30,000 foot level, all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a second, that's, that is inconsistent or in some cases completely contradictory. And and we're making progress. There was a really interesting report um, just just the other day from uh, Forrester that said that some 61% of CMOs now, chief marketing officers, are responsible for the entire customer experience inside major companies. And that would not have been the case uh, or was not the case a short time ago. Uh, where in, in many cases, customer experience was fragmented or was the responsibility of somebody who was more on the operations side. So so marketing is starting to take control of the end-to-end customer experience. Yeah. And I think as that trend expands and takes root, you'll start to see more consistency in storytelling and, and frankly, in what it feels like to interact with a business in in all parts of the enterprise yeah so voice of the customer is actually changing internal culture and and um 
and make finally. it. Finally. Yeah, finally. It, it's interesting, actually, Jay. I mean, this is something I'm particularly interested in because I'm on a mission at the moment. We're working on a number of projects and we're doing some research. And um, I'm close, close to proving that in certain sectors, a recruitment marketing pound is more effective at um, recruiting a new customer than a marketing pound. Um, and I think it's because um, the the experience from a candidate is is a little bit more personal and emotional. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also think that um, marketing is structured uh, close to sales, and there's synth. There is a need uh, culturally in in organisations to synthesise stories rather than use existing authentic stories within the business. I'm just interested to see what you think about that. Absolutely. I, I feel like we have made so much progress um, in the last two or three years on storytelling as an important part of business. Um, podcasts like yours, like the business of story that uh, my friend Park Howell runs, what yeah, a show that we well. produce. Yeah. Uh, we produce that show and, and uh, it's one of the things that we're really proud of. Um, and, and just lots of great books on the topic as well. Mm-hmm. But I feel like a lot of the stories right now are fiction not nonfiction. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Which which is not really what we mean. Right? When when somebody says you should embrace storytelling in your business, I don't think uh, you're certainly more uh, apt to answer this than I am. I don't think the strategy there is let's make up a fake story <laughs> and use that as as sort of the resonant emotional thing that causes people to change their behavior. Uh, when I think about business storytelling, I think more documentary style. Uh-huh. Let's let's use what is true uh, and package that in a way that becomes a compelling story. Uh, and and so I, I should write about this. I feel like we the, the next step in the in the evolutionary chain is to shift stories from fiction to nonfiction. Yeah, I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. I mean, I guess you know there's there's some um, value in a sort of parable that gets uh, makes a sort of a point morally or, or whatever. But in my experience, there are businesses are sat on a gold mine of genuine, authentic stories, and yet they spend money oh, uh, creating. I'm gonna tell you a story about a story. So when <laughs> I was uh, when I was my very first real job, okay, I was an intern at a uh, at a, at an agency, marketing agency. Uh, and I was uh, just 18. I just uh, finished my freshman year at university. And one of our clients was Rockford Fosgate. And Rockford Fosgate was a, still is a manufacturer of car stereo speakers and amplifiers. And we were just starting the, the, the account. And so they brought me along as sort of, hey, we'll bring the intern to you. It'll be a good experience. So we went on a factory tour. And we're standing there in the factory. And there's an assembly line, and all the amplifiers are coming down the assembly line. And at the very end, the last person on the assembly line was this giant, enormous man. Uh, he was probably six foot five and, and 250, 60 pounds, long gray beard, long uh, gray ponytail, <laughs> wearing a white lab coat, and carrying a giant rubber mallet. It was sort of like a motorcycle gang slash, you know, chef combo. It was very strange. <laughs> and so he's at the end. And the amplifiers come down the line. He takes each one, puts it on a table, um, and then takes his mallet and goes, bam, 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 and just starts beating on this amplifier. What? And then plugs it in. And if the light turns green, uh, he puts it in a box 
and then down the rolling assembly line and that's it. And so we're standing there. Uh, there's like five of us and, and we're just watching this dumbfounded. And we say to the marketing director who's giving us the tour, um, so is he always here or is it just, <laughs> is he is it just like, is it agency day? Right. And, and she said, Oh no, that's uh, that's Bob. Uh, he is our quality control process because uh, most of our customers uh, are young men and they drive their vehicles very aggressively. They, they hit curbs and they jump dips and things like that. And we want to make sure that their amplifier connections stay tight because if they don't, it's a terrible customer experience. You have to up, you know, take your seat out and undo your carpet in your vehicle and plug it back in. It's a real hassle. So we want to make sure those connections stay tight no matter what. And so he's the process by which we ensure that. And we thought, my God, it's a man with a mallet. This is the craziest thing ever. Uh, and so we created an entire campaign. I, I'm obviously not taking credit for this. I was the intern. But the agency where I was uh, created an entire campaign about this. Uh, and all it was was a picture of of Bob, the real Bob, wearing his coat, holding his mallet. And the headline was, Rockford Fosgate, if we can't whale it, we fail it. And then we just told his story, narrative style. Wow. And it, it was a huge success in the industry because all car stereo ads then and now are the exact same thing. Product shot and then like 14 bullet points of, of, of technical specifications. And this actually had a real story and was hugely, hugely uh, successful. But what the reason I tell you that story is that – when we asked the marketing director, hey, what's interesting about Rockford Fosgate? What, what do you do that your competition doesn't do? She said, we make amplifiers in five sizes, and our competitors only make them in three. Oh, my God. And meanwhile, she's standing there in the same room with a guy with a mallet. <laughs> and, and so bringing this back around to your point yeah. the problem is most businesses have incredible stories but they cannot find them because to them they're not story worthy they're they're so close to it that they're like well that's just how we do it that's not interesting nobody would think that's interesting and so every business has a bob Every single business has a bob it's your responsibility to figure out what that story is and to go tell it. And that's why I feel like agencies and third parties are really good at storytelling for business because they take, they look at it with fresh eyes. You know, yeah, they, they, they're like, Oh, wait a second. This is amazing. You, you, how do you, why is this not important to you? But they, they see it every day. It just becomes routine. Absolutely. And I guess, um, I guess the lesson there is, you know, marketing, if you, if you're constantly looking at, um, how to amplify a message about features and benefits, then actually that'll take you so far. But if you focus it from a people first point of view, you know, and find Bob in your organization, it's immediately as you're telling that story, it's sort of, it resonates much better. And actually it starts to create empathy with, um, with, with the brand and the, and the business. Yeah. You, you mentioned really early on uh, in the conversation about empathy. Now, Jay, I've had a lot of people on, on this on this show. Uh, well, many of them are your friends. You you know them. Uh, everybody's got their theory or advice around empathy. My final question is, from your perspective, from your um, area of expertise, what's the best way a brand can create and and use empathy for the for the good of their business? 
I'll, I'll look at this through a customer service prism since that's what yeah. the work I've been doing most recently. I, I will say that a brand cannot do that. Um, that 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 a brand cannot be empathetic. A, a brand has no feelings. The manifestations of the brand do, and, and that is the people who represent that brand. So the best way that a brand can display empathy is to hire people who are empathetic uh, as as individuals um, who, who, who really do care uh, about customers in a way that is um, disproportionate to most. But most importantly, I think, is, is the brands, and we touched on this earlier, the brands who have the belief in their employees to say, we trust you to do the right thing and to take care of this customer in any way that you think he or she needs to be taken care of. So the, the best way to have empathy ooze out of the brand is to trust employees to deal with customers with empathy and humanely. Uh, and that means, and that means not giving them a script. That means not saying here are the things that you have to say no to. It means crazily, as I researched in the book, there's lots of brands that will not allow customer service people to to apologize because they they believe because they have some sort of crazy attorney that if you apologize, it opens us up to liability, and so they can never say I'm sorry. There's all these insane policies out there in in. <laughs> In customer service that, of course, remove any dose of, of empathy or humanity. Uh, but the best businesses are the ones that fundamentally trust their team to take care of people. And it's not any more complicated than that. Yeah, well, I think that's some great advice and really simple. But there'll be a lot of people thinking, wow, I wish I, wish I was in a position where I could get my organization. Why did you hire these people if you don't trust them? <laughs> yeah, no, if you totally don't trust them, why did you hire them? If, if, if all you're going to do is give them a keyboard and a phone and then say, read this script, why did you hire them? Uh, I totally agree, and there'll be a lot of and look, frustrated and people. And this idea, agree. this idea that they that, that somebody they're going to give away the store, they're going to say, "Oh no, you know what? You're unhappy. Free, free product for life." Like, I mean, it's crazy, right? <laughs> and, and here's the thing that's so puzzling about this: they have a network password, they have a key card, right? They have everybody's phone numbers in the whole company, everybody's email address in the whole. I mean, if these people wanted to screw you. <laughs> They've got a lot of tools at their disposal to do that that are far more dangerous than maybe being too kind to an unhappy customer. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the way you frame that because it's ludicrous when you, uh, when you position it like that, isn't it? It's just insane. <laughs> well, yeah, this has very deep historical roots, right? And, and it goes back to the fact that that for a really long time, customer service was just a necessary evil. It was an expense, and that's because it wasn't in public. See, when, when customer service was always on the phone and email and face-to-face, -face, there was no real downside for being terrible to customers because who were they going to tell? And there was no upside to being great to customers because who were they going to tell? And, and so that's why we still have this, this sort of culture in many places of like, meh, whatever, we don't really care one way or the other. But now that it's shifting to public, the downside of being bad at it is much greater and the upside of being good at it is also much greater. And so it's, it's changed the, the importance and frankly, the financial repercussions of customer service, both, both to the good and the bad. And that's why it's being disrupted and hence the book and, and all this stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Jay, there's no good place to end this conversation, at least where I'm sat, but I'm conscious of your time. Um, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, before you leave, can you tell people where to find out more about you? And is there anything you'd like to uh, leave us with or draw the audience's attention to? 
Absolutely. Thanks so much. The best place to uh, get info about and from me is at convinceandconvert.com. Convinceandconvert.com. That's our award-winning blog. All of our podcasts, our daily email newsletter, etc. cetera. Uh, the book, Hug Your Haters, is available in all the places and ways that books are available. Audiobook read by me, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, hugyourhaters.com is the official website for the book. And if you go there, there's all kinds of special offers. Uh, just send me your receipt from uh, wherever you purchase it, and I'll send you some free stuff. Wow. Brilliant. There's an offer you can't turn down, guys. That's it for another show. Join me next week for more story-related expertise, and thanks for listening.